every time uh, get ready to get up and share God's truth with you, the thoughts that come to my mind as we're worshiping is just, uh, just like David, how insufficient we are to really do this kind of thing, you know? I mean, not just as a pastor preaching or as worship leaders leading, but it's just members of a church that Christ gave his life for. And why did he have to give his life? Because we're so filthy. So, um, but anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. It's good to have a Sunday morning where all you have to focus on is God and nothing else matters. Um, oh, sorry. I, just, <laughs> I won't wear it throughout the sermon, but you know. Once every 15 years, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. I may be fired before they win another one, so <laughs> let's, put it on, let's put it on there. Um, <clears throat> power source. This is number 16 in the life of David. We're skipping over a few chapters this week um, in 2 Samuel. We're going to 2 Samuel 4, but before we do that, I want to explain what I mean by power source because as humans... There are a lot of things that we depend upon. You know, we depend upon the lights coming on when we flip on the switch. And uh, if it doesn't, there's thoughts that go through our heads sometimes that cannot be uttered. Uh, we count on our car starting in the morning on the way to work. We count on our paycheck coming from our employer. There's a lot of things that we depend upon, and certainly I understand that. But what I want to try to do today is give you a perspective a bigger perspective that, frankly, only a child of God can understand when it comes to where your power and strength really generates from. But before that, I just want to make sure that you understand that four chapters we are skipping and what they detail. Basically, after Saul died and Jonathan died and a couple of other his sons died in a war with the Philistines, there's basically a civil war between the house of David and Abner, who was Saul's general, and Abner, Saul's general, takes Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons who was not in the battle, who was still alive, and he sets up Ishbosheth as king. Really, it's kind of like a, uh, a puppet leader. And basically, Abner is trying to keep Saul's throne because Abner knows that he is not the general of the army anymore if David becomes king because David has his own general whose name is Joab. And so we understand in the first four chapters what happens. There's a lengthy civil war between Abner and Joab. And Abner decides to make peace with David. At some point, Abner says, you know what? This is not going to work. It's not going to end well for me. So I'm going to go to David and say, David, listen, I acknowledge you're supposed to be king. I'm going to make peace with you. And I'm no longer going to be supporting Ishbosheth, Saul's son, as king. But Joab doesn't like that because Joab's a jealous, angry man. And so Joab hears about this and he hatches a scheme to murder Abner. And I won't go into all the details, but it's outlined in 2 Samuel chapter 1 through 3. You can read about it. And basically he elaborate, you know, he hatches this elaborate scheme to kill his rival Abner because he doesn't want Abner around. He doesn't want anybody crowding in on his power or his authority because Abner is a pretty good general. Now David hears about the death of Abner and it's interesting because Abner was against David. We understand that. 
just like Saul was. But what was David's reaction when the Philistines killed Saul? He mourned for Saul. He mourned for Jonathan. And it was genuine. And it was really sad that some of, his, some of his Jewish brothers had been killed. And he does the same thing about Abner, and he's very angry with Joab. And he basically says, Joab, you're going to have a curse in your house because Abner was one of us. I had just created a treaty with him, so we were going to have peace, and we have to worry about it anymore, and you go and kill him anyway. Now, why does David react like this? Well, there's a reminder about a promise that David made to Saul that he would not cut off his sons once David was king. Do you guys remember that promise? If you don't remember it, I'm going to put the verse up here for you. This is after Saul had been spared a third time by David. David had three chances to kill Saul. This is after the third one. Okay? And Saul says, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me. In other words, don't kill all my kids. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went to the stronghold. So that was the promise that David made to Saul, even as Saul was pursuing him and trying to kill him and trying to keep David from taking power. David says, Saul, I promise, I'm not going to cut off your name. I'm not going to kill your kids when I become king. And David keeps that promise. But this leads us to the story of Ishbosheth. Now I'm going to read to you 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible app on your phone or if you have an actually written Bible, you can follow along if you want. <clears throat> now, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, remember, Abner was the reason that Ishbosheth even had any power. When he heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banna, and the other one was Rechab, the sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Baroth. And the Barothites fled to, to Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. And then verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled from in, in his feet when he was five years old. And when news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, his nurse took him and fled, and as she fled in her haste, she fell and dropped him, and Mephibosheth became lame. So that's another one of Saul's sons. Now the sons of Rimon and Rechab and Banna, they set out around the heat of the day, and they came to the house of where Isbosheth was, and he was taking a noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if they were just there to get wheat, and they stabbed Isbosheth in his stomach. And then they escaped. Then when they came to the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of Areba all night. So here's basically what happens. There's these two guys, and the Scripture calls them raiders. Isn't that interesting? Wasn't David sort of a raider? Remember when he lived with the Philistines, what was he doing? He was going attacking in Bradenton and Venice and Mayaka every day, taking all their stuff. Right? Do you remember that? And it's interesting now, David was the same as these guys. 
But these guys hear about Abner dying. They know Ishbosheth has no power. And they think to themselves, I wonder how we can get favor with David. And they go and they betray Ishbosheth. They were part of his army. And they betray him. And they think, you know, David will probably like the fact that we killed this other king who doesn't deserve to be on the throne. So they bring the head of Saul's son to David. Do you remember what happened the last time somebody brought the head of Saul to David? What did David do to them? He executed them for killing the Lord's anointed. So they're seeking favor with David, and they bring the head of Ishbosheth to David, thinking David's going to reward us, he's going to give us power, he's going to invite us into his kingdom because we destroyed one of his enemies. You see, what I think is, this is another attempt. Remember what the overall theme of the life of David is? <clears throat> Satan hates David, and Satan wants, to, da- Satan wants to discredit David. And if he can't keep David from the throne, certainly he can make David hated by those who he's ruling and make his rule just a miserable pain. So Satan is trying to discredit David by making him go back on this promise that was made to, by the way, many people. When this promise was made by Saul... Everybody heard it. Our promise was made by David to Saul. Everybody heard it. And so Satan is trying to discredit David, making him go back on his promise to Saul. But what David does is he recounts how he treated the last person that thought bringing news of Saul's death would be joyful. And what David does, it's interesting, he declares that he knows Ishbosheth was actually an innocent man. <clears throat> and he knows that Ishbosheth was nothing more than a tool that Abner was using. So let me look at this passage for you, 2 Samuel chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 8 through 12 now. It's the second part of the chapter. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day. And Saul on his offspring. But David answered, both of them, as the Lord lives, listen to this carefully, this is an amazing passage, it's an amazing statement by the king. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. I want to park there for just a minute. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. David makes a declarative statement there that says, you know, my redemption is not by your treachery. My ascension to power is not going to be because of your murder of Ishbosheth. And he says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed me out of every adversity, when someone told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. And that was the reward I gave him for his news. Now how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth, and they buried it in the tomb of Abner. See, here's what he does. He declares where his trust 
and patience for redemption lies. Do you understand that David himself had plenty of opportunities to kill his enemy? And he knew it was not the right way to go. He knew that his trust would wait for God's hand. He orders the two to be executed. Their hands and feet cut off. Their corpses hang publicly. This meant that they were to be treated like common criminals. Their, their bodies were to be exhibited for all to see, not buried, but they wanted everyone to know that these men were murderers. And in contrast, he takes the head of Isbosheth and buries it in Abner's tomb. Now, I don't know if it's a possibility that he was demonstrating who he really felt was responsible for the death of Ishbosheth, because it never would have happened had Abner not tried to seize power. But there's no doubt that there are stern measures that David takes, this retribution. And, but not only that, this genuine love that he seems to have for Saul's family. It's strange, isn't it? Remember his relationship with, with Jonathan? David's judgment of the brothers is a severe reminder that vengeance in David's kingdom belongs to God. It also sent a clear message to all of Israel that treachery would not be revered. It would not be a desired trait or action. And that even when God had anointed him to be king, he would not approve of coming to power in that way. You see, as a man after God's own heart, David understood where his strength and endurance came from. And he could have grabbed power at any time. Do you understand? Once David was anointed king, he knew, okay, one day I'm going to be God's king. I'm going to be running the show. And he had multiple opportunities, even at his own peril, that he turned his back on, that he could have made sure that he got power sooner than later. But instead, he waits for years. He could have seized power any time by the sword without God's direction. He could have seized power at any time by killing Saul on multiple occasions. He could have seized power by, by um, manipulating a scheme with Jonathan. Remember how close they were? Jonathan said, I'll do anything for you, David. He could have used Jonathan against his father. He didn't do it. He could have at any point seized power by taking out Abner or Ishbosheth without God's direction. He could have used his increasing power and wealth to undermine Abner and Ishbosheth. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he chose to wait patiently on God's timing for years at the expense of his own comfort, at the expense of his own safety, at the expense of his own possessions, and much of it was spent where? In caves, in the wilderness, and then for 18 months, far from home, in a pagan land with the Philistines, who he despised. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? David could have had a rapid ascension to power, but he decided, I'm not going to honor treachery. 
God has given me the promise of the kingship, and I will wait on his timing, even if it means I, David, got to sleep in a cave with 600 smelly soldiers. Do you understand the commitment? Now, we've talked a lot about how David was kind of a scummy guy, and we're going to talk about it more, trust me. But there's something different about David's faith here. Unlike Joab and unlike Abner, David knew his favor wouldn't come from treachery, revenge, manipulation, lies, self-serving treaties, or even the sword. Saul thought it would come from the sword, did he not? He tried to kill David. Joab tried to kill Abner because he was afraid that he would lose power there. Or the guys that murdered Ishbosheth. See, David knew that his power and his ascension to the throne would not have to be a result of him taking matters into his own hands. He would wait patiently for God. As flawed as David was, perhaps this is what we begin to see that sets him apart. This is what maybe we begin to see that sets us apart, as flawed as we are. Because the gift of faith was necessary to put trust in God's power to deliver him from every snare. As God lives, who has delivered me from every difficult situation. That's not something that comes naturally, is it? Is it a natural process for us to trust in God's timing? Time after time, David, even in the midst of all his flaws, demonstrates faith in God to deliver him, to exalt him, to bless him, and to keep him, and preserve him, and redeem him, and justify him, even in the midst of his own sin. This is the difference between the example of a deeply flawed man after God's own heart, who had the gift of faith, and a deeply flawed man that had faith only in their own vision, their own power, and their own schemes. The difference seems subtle, doesn't it? Is it possible that the difference between us and wickedness is that subtle? Is it? Or No, certainly there has to be something more about David that made him different. Is it possible that the only difference between David and Saul and Joab and Abner is this miraculous thing called a gift of faith? A gift that is not earned, a gift that is not taken, a gift that is not merited, a gift that is given, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Look at this passage in Matthew. And it even mentions David's son, which is interesting. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Do you think David could have easily been asking those questions when he was living in a cave? 
For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for its own self. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, kingdom. David was certainly in a situation where he was seeking a kingdom. A kingdom that was rightfully promised to him by the prophet who anointed him. He had plenty of opportunities to seize what was rightfully his. Yet David said, no, I will wait for God. How often are we tempted to take matters into our own hands? Showing a lack of faith and trust in God? What are the things that we put our trust in to deliver us from our own hardship? Money? Friends? Family? A mutual fund? Perhaps a promise of some inheritance? Reputation? What are the things that when you wake up in the morning that you think about that give you comfort to get through the trouble which is today? Where is the first thing that your mind turns to when things get a little bit cloudy? What are the people? What are the thoughts? What are the possessions? What are the powers that you turn to immediately when things start to get difficult? Or perhaps even when things are easy. Because see, when that happens, it's really a choice of trust in something earthly, just like Saul and Abner and Joab did. Are we tracking here? Because there's a subtle difference between the two. Is your focus on acquiring and achieving, or is your focus on following, serving, and obeying? Do you have the ability to recognize that acquiring and achieving aren't necessarily separated from following, serving, and obeying, but they certainly have to be subservient to following, serving, and obeying? Because if you try to acquire and you try to achieve without first seeking the kingdom of God, it's like a carrot on the end of a stick that you'll never reach. Oh, you might get some stuff in your account, but it leaves you empty. And when you die, it's pointless. You cannot differentiate between the two, acquiring and achieving or following, serving, and obeying. You cannot differentiate between the two without the gift of faith, to trust that all these things will be added. Isn't that what the Scripture says in Matthew? First seek the kingdom of God, then the rest of the stuff that you need will be added. So, I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable with you as I'm prone to do sometimes. And I'm going to share with you from my journal. And as I share this, I don't want you to judge me. Actually, I took some words out so you wouldn't judge me quite as much. (laughs) But 
I'm sure there were times David was frustrated with waiting and was tempted to take what was his and not wait on God's hand. Even though I'm in ministry, I know that God has more for me at some point, and it's hard to wait on his timing. Sometimes I'm tempted to force it, feeling like I am ready. But I know God has called me, and just like David, I need to have the faith in his planning and in his timing. And let me explain to you where I was at the time. And this is why this passage, this lesson is kind of a... I love bringing these out of my personal devotional journal, right? So you guys understand that I'm struggling with these truths too. I'm not some crystal cathedral high in the sky kind of pastor that doesn't struggle just like you. I'm bivocational. I understand what life is like. I've gone through difficulty and I struggle with sin and thoughts all the time. I am, I trust me, I'm no better than any of you. And there was a time in my ministry <clears throat> where I was doing ministry and it was going well, youth ministry and some other things, but I seemed to always have this desire in my heart and I knew God had called me to this, but I was tired of waiting. I wanted to do something more. I wanted to preach more. I wanted to preach every week. I loved the Word of God. I wanted to share it. And it seemed like the opportunities would never come. So I waited. Sometimes I thought maybe I should just start my own church. God made that pretty clear nobody would follow. Maybe I should start putting out resumes. Well, the resumes don't look that good. You've been in youth ministry your whole life. You haven't even been an associate pastor. <laughs> so I waited. And I had this burning desire in me to fulfill what I knew God had called me, but I didn't know when. And then I turned 40. 41. 42. 43. 20 years, in, is it ever going to happen? And then an opportunity came to be with you each week here at the garden. And the day the opportunity came, I'm just, I'm just being vulnerable with you here. I was so humbled, but so excited. Because I knew God had called me to something. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it looked like. But I was restless. And I had opportunities to force it that would have been complete disasters for those who I was ministering to and for myself. So I waited. And it's interesting, all that time I thought, you know, I could really do this. I could really do it. I, I, I. And now that I have an opportunity to be in front of people like you every week to share God's truth, it's so humbling and it's so frightening. It's scary. And I look back now, I can see, oh, that's why I wasn't doing it then. That's why God's plan is better than my plan. That's why it's important, guys, for you to seek first, not the achieving not the acquiring. It's important for you to seek first the serving. The kingdom. Seek those things first. And then, the other stuff that you think you need, God brings it about later. So I'll close with this thought. 
Do you have a vision for what God has for your life? Maybe the vision needs to shift to serving. Because what can easily happen is this, right? David could have easily obsessed and fixated upon the throne that God had promised him. God had promised him. And it's very possible that David could have easily disqualified himself had he not been given the gift of faith to trust that all these things will be added. What makes us different than someone else? One thing, and it's got nothing to do with you, it's that God, for some unknown reason, decided to implant with you the gift of faith, to trust that He will bring it to pass, that He will sustain you, that He will provide for you, that He will exalt you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and He will lift you up at the proper time. That's not Pastor Joe. That's Scripture.